Hello, you're listening to episode 5 of Today in Church History, a place where we're reminded that history is truly His story. History is the story of God and the demonstration of His glory in the theater of world events. I hope you enjoy listening to these episodes of Today in Church History. Their purpose is to ignite a passion for God's truth, one historical event at a time. Today is Friday, January 25th, 2019. But on this day in AD 98, Trajan became the emperor of the Roman Empire upon the death of his predecessor, Emperor Nerva. Trajan had a reputation of kindness. He had a reputation of being friendly, even to his enemies. He was also a wise politician that got along with the Senate. In fact, on January 25, AD 98, the day he became emperor, he entered Rome on foot. He did this to relate to the people, to indicate that he was a normal private citizen, just like everyone else in Rome. And perhaps a similar move, in 1977, President Jimmy Carter began an inaugural day tradition when he stepped out of his limousine and walked a mile down Pennsylvania Avenue waving to crowds on his inauguration day. Presidents since have followed suit. But let's remember that Trajan's kindness was just a veneer. He was anything but friendly to Christians. His predecessor, Emperor Nerva, came to power just two years prior, replacing Emperor Domitian. It was Domitian who reintroduced the imperial cult practice of recognizing emperors as having the authority of God himself. Trajan believed he had the same authority. John Fox, the author of Fox's Book of Martyrs, refers to Domitian's rule as the second persecution under Domitian, the first being under Nero. But the third persecution, as he calls it, took place under Trajan. And this is where it gets interesting. At this time in the Roman Empire, persecutions from the Roman government took place at the local level. But in Trajan, we find an emperor who gave strong advice to a local ruler on how to treat Christians. In other words, here we find direct advice from the most powerful man, not only in the Roman Empire, but in the entire world. And the advice he gives reveals his extreme opposition to Christians. Now, the advice itself is found in a letter written by Gaius Plinius Secundus, otherwise known as Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger was a well-known Roman senator. But it was during his time as governor of Bithynia and Pontus, which is modern-day Turkey, that his contribution to history is highlighted. Pliny was a man of letters, and he saved both the letters he wrote as well as the responses he received back. One of the earliest mentions of Christians and pagan literature is found in a letter Pliny sent to Emperor Trajan, sometime between the years AD 111 and 113. In the letter, Pliny is inquiring as to how he, as governor, should handle Christians. He's seeking advice. He's seeking guidance. In the letter, Pliny tells Emperor Trajan that of those accused of Christianity, he had only executed those who refused to repent and sacrifice to the gods, which meant they were also sacrificing in the name of the emperor himself, since the emperor himself was considered deity. Now, here's a portion of Emperor Trajan's response to Pliny's letter. Trajan writes, and I quote, You observed proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who had been denounced to you as Christians, for it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proved guilty, they are to be punished, with this reservation, that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance." But anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in any prosecution, for this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. 
Now, if you read the entire letter, you can sense the tension that Pliny feels regarding whether the offenses of Christians and their beliefs and practices consisted of actual criminal acts. Pliny is seeking assurance from the emperor. He's seeking counsel. He wants his conscience assuaged. And if you read more of the letter, you will find that Pliny's own investigation possessed three key conclusions regarding Christians, conclusions that Trajan himself confirms in his actual response. Conclusion number one was that Christians were not actually guilty of criminal acts. Pliny reports this to Trajan, and Trajan confirms that this, in fact, is true. But then conclusion two says that apostates, or Christians, should be pardoned or forgiven so long as they sacrificed to the gods. The implication is that if they don't sacrifice to the gods, they will be executed. And then conclusion three was that Christians should not be sought out and that any anonymous accusations without sufficient proof were to be ignored. Now here we see what appears to be professional correspondence on a gentleman's level. On the surface, this letter and the response gives the appearance of two politicians trying to do what is best for Rome, trying to do what is best for the Roman citizenry, trying to do what is best for the Roman government. They appear like they are after justice and equity and fairness. They do not curse Christians, but they actually come across gracious and merciful. But let's remember that though Trajan's persecution of Christians is not viewed to be as bad as Domitian's, it is true that during his reign many Christians were in fact executed, perhaps most notably Ignatius of Antioch, who was, along with Polycarp, tradition says, a disciple of the Apostle John. Ignatius was a big figure in Christianity. Ignatius himself surmised that he would be thrown to wild beasts in the Colosseum, and this was actually confirmed by John Chrysostom, Eusebius, and Jerome as well. So Trajan was anything but a kind, friendly, humble, run-of-the-mill Roman citizen. He was a murderer and a Christ-rejecter. Let us be clear about that. But the lesson to take from this is that no matter how civilized or progressive a society or its politics may appear, no matter how civil governments may appear before the people's eyes, and no matter what has happened in the past in terms of Christians being at some level of peace with human governments, Christians will not escape persecution. Sure, persecution will ebb and flow in the timeline of world history, but Christians live in a perpetual state of tribulation, or at least the threat of tribulation. Now, this may not be true in the United States, but it is in other parts of the world, and it could be true someday in the United States. Jesus himself was clear on this. He said, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Even just this past Christmas, we read about our brothers and sisters in China suffering immense persecution, pastors and church members' homes being ransacked, places of worship being taken over by local law enforcement, causing a church and a seminary to seemingly vanish overnight. And what are these persecuted Chinese brethren doing? Well, they are reciting scripture. They are singing hymns together in their jail cells, just like Paul and Silas did in the first century. In fact, Christian couples are agreeing that when the husband is arrested, because inevitably he will be arrested, and taken into custody, that during their time of separation, the husband and the wife will pray for one another during the same time of day. And when questioned by authorities what they believe and what they teach, they are quoting Heidelberg 1 and the Westminster Confession of Faith along with the scriptures. It makes us ask ourselves, how would we respond in such a situation? Maybe we never will be faced with such grim circumstances. But you can respond to the persecution of others in the body of Christ today by praying for your brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. 
And while you're at it, you can pray that God will graciously give you strength. That if you're ever arrested, if you're ever beaten, if you're ever interrogated, if you're ever threatened with death, that you won't break under the pressure, but that you will continue strong in your faith in Jesus Christ until the end. Jesus said persecution was inevitable, but he also said this. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let us be confident that God directs all events in history for his glory. We remember history because remembering history helps us celebrate what God has done and what God can do. Persecution is often what God uses to spark reformation and revival. May he grant all of us grace in our time of greatest temptation. And may he give a special measure of grace and comfort to our brethren suffering at the hands of the Chinese government. History is truly his story. It's a story of God and the demonstration of his glory in the theater of world events. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Today in Church History. Until next time, I'm your host, Andrew Smith.